Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Eyeing the Benefits and Risks of VEGF-Targeted Therapies for Neovascular AMD. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Hello, my name is Dr. Nancy Holkamp. I am Director of Retina Services at the Pepos Vision Institute in St. Louis, Missouri. In this program, we will be discussing VEGF-targeted therapies for neovascular age-related macular degeneration. Here we see the available intravitreal anti-VEGF agents for neovascular AMD. Bevacizumab is not FDA approved. All have been tested in clinical trials at various dosing intervals, ranging from Q4 weeks to Q12 weeks. Three of the agents are antibody fragments, ranibizumab, bevacizumab, and brolicizumab. One is a receptor conjugate protein, a flibercept. We also have a treatment that targets both ANG2 and VEGFA called furisumab. When performing FDA approval clinical trials, a new agent doesn't have to be superior than the existing standard of care. It just has to be no worse than the existing therapy. And so we commonly see non-inferiority clinical trials leading to FDA approval. These are the pivotal clinical trials that led to FDA approval for ranibizumab, aflibercept, and brolicizumab, as well as the CAT clinical trial that led to widespread accepted use of bevacizumab. Please note that these are non-inferiority clinical trials. There are clinical trials for furisumab, which targets ANG2 as well as VEGFA. These clinical trials are Tanaya and Lucerne and compared furisumab to aflibercept. In these graphs, we see that targeting a second pathway does not provide superior visual acuity outcomes compared to anti-VEGF targeted therapy with aflibercept. So in summary, we have had over 15 years of anti-VEGF targeted therapies for treating our patients with neovascular AMD, and they are quite effective in reducing the rate of legal blindness due to wet macular degeneration. But these treatments require frequent injections, and there's a limit to how much visual acuity benefit we achieve for our patients in clinical practice. In the next session, let's discuss the safety data for approved intravitreal VEGF-targeted therapies used in the treatment of neovascular AMD. There are potential adverse events associated with anti-VEGF therapies. Commonly, we see conjunctival hemorrhage, eye pain, transient increase in intraocular pressure, and vitreous floaters. These are adverse events that we associate with the injection procedure. There are rare but serious adverse events that include endophthalmitis or intraocular inflammation and more seriously, occlusive retinal vasculitis. In general, ranibizumab and aflibercept have low rates of serious ocular adverse events. The major safety concern for bevacizumab is the fact that it is made in compounding pharmacies rather than an FDA-approved manufacturing facility. Finally, brolicizumab's major safety concern is occlusive retinal vasculitis, 
a rare but serious adverse event. When we look at the rates of intraocular inflammation in brilicizumab, we can look at post-FDA approval data, which shows an incidence of IOI of 4.6%, but IOI with vasculitis was 3.3%, and the rate of IOI plus vasculitis and vascular occlusion was 2.1%. So now, according to the FDA label, brilicizumab is quoted as having an IOI rate of 4%, Compared to other anti-VEGF agents with a rate of 1%, that is significantly higher. We know from the Tanaya and Lucerne clinical trials that the rates of IOI for furisumab were similar to a flibercept. We see 2% for furisumab, but 1% and 2% for a flibercept. What we really need to see is in post-marketing surveillance, whether these safety numbers remain consistent across treatments. Finally, it's important to note that in Tanaya and Lucerne, there were no rates of vasculitis or occlusive retinal vasculitis with either furisumab or flibercept. In summary, we know that every anti-VEGF injection carries with it the risk of an adverse event. Most are mild. However, there are serious adverse events associated with intraocular inflammation. In the next session, let's discuss key strategies for monitoring and managing adverse events associated with VEGF-targeted therapies for neovascular AMD. After patients have received anti-VEGF injections, we must be careful to look for signs of intraocular inflammation. If inflammation occurs between day three and day 10, we must have a high level of suspicion for endophthalmitis. However, if signs of intraocular inflammation present two to three weeks after injection, it may be due to intraocular inflammation as a hypersensitivity to one of the anti-VEGF agents. Typically, patients present with an increase in floaters, light sensitivity, decreased vision, ocular discomfort, and flashes. Should a patient present with these symptoms, it requires a complete ocular examination with imaging, including OCT, color fundus photographs, and fluorescein angiography. In particular, with fluorescein angiography, we are looking for any evidence of vasculitis or occlusive retinal vasculitis. We must be careful to note the presence or absence of anterior chamber and or vitreous cell, or haze, and we must always consider the possibility of endophthalmitis. Treating intraocular inflammation after anti-VEGF injections should include early aggressive treatment with topical corticosteroids for mild or moderate inflammation with a low threshold for either systemic or intravitreal corticosteroids for more severe inflammation but it is absolutely essential to rule out or consider endophthalmitis and even inject intravitreal antibiotics in case of botrytis or suspected endophthalmitis. In the absence of adverse events, and particularly for patients who have inactive neovascular AMD, it is very important to monitor these patients at regular intervals. This could include performing refractions at distance and near at least once per year, performing a fundus examination at least every four to six months, looking for any low-grade activity of neovascular AMD, and performing a dilated examination in the event of unexplained vision loss.
In summary, we know that anti-VEGF therapy carries with it a small risk of adverse events. These could include intraocular inflammation due to hypersensitivity of the biologic agent or endophthalmitis from the injection procedure. It's very important to try to distinguish between these two conditions and treat each appropriately. In the next session, let's discuss how to weigh the benefits and risks of VEGF-targeted therapies for neovascular AMD and how to select a treatment based on individual disease, drug, and patient-related factors. This session will review how to select a treatment based on individual disease, drug, and patient-related factors. First, we have to introduce this idea of intravitreal injections to patients. First, I try to allay their fears by emphasizing that we are very good at numbing the eye. Then I try to reassure them about the minimal pain and discomfort that should be experienced after the injection. And I have found that instilling a post-injection non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drop sometimes helps with these symptoms. And finally, I manage patient expectations by explaining we will start with three loading doses and then assess frequently after the loading period, and they will likely require additional injections. The pivotal trials show us in a cross-trial comparison that about 50% of patients can eventually get to Q12-week dosing with ranibizumab, aflibercept, or brolicizumab. In particular, in the VIEW1 and VIEW2 clinical trials, we see approximately 50% of patients achieving this Q12-week dosing interval by year two. However, most retina specialists in clinical practice utilize a treat and extend treatment paradigm. I begin with three monthly loading doses, and then I monitor the patient and perform a disease activity assessment that allows me to adjust their treatment interval, either increasing or decreasing by two weeks. I find that most patients then fall into a fixed interval that's individualized for their particular situation of neovascular AMD. I am unable to predict which patients will do well with fixed interval dosing versus treat and extend. Therefore, I like to prepare everyone for frequent injections during the first year and advise that only in the second or third year of treatment will the number of injections start to decrease. My maximum treatment interval is 16 weeks. But if I have someone who's doing well, it may be possible to treat them PRN or just monitor them. But I find with wet macular degeneration, most patients will re-leak at some point and therefore continue to need monitoring. In summary, most of our clinical trials utilize fixed interval dosing. However, most retina specialists practice with a treat and extend treatment paradigm. In the next session, let's discuss VEGF-targeted therapy, dosing strategies, and key clinical considerations for selecting a dosing regimen. Most retina specialists utilize a treat-and-extend approach for dosing anti-VEGF agents in wet macular degeneration. Personally, I use at least three loading doses until I achieve a maximum response. And then I begin the treat and extend process.
process with maximal extension out to 16 weeks, but I shorten or extend the interval by two to four weeks. My criteria for extension include the absence of intraretinal fluid, minimal or stable subretinal fluid and sub-RPE fluid, no significant vision loss of visual acuity, and no signs of active hemorrhaging. When we employ the treat and extend paradigm, we're really looking at three key factors of the office visit, visual acuity, findings on the OCT, and findings on a dilated fundus examination. During the treat and extend process, I can lengthen the treatment interval for a patient on anti-VEGF therapy if there's no significant decrease in visual acuity and there is no intraretinal fluid or stable or decreasing subretinal and sub-RPE fluid, and there are no signs of hemorrhage on a dilated fundus examination. So in order to lengthen the treatment interval, the patient must pass all three of these tests, vision, OCT, and clinical examination. During the treat and extend process, I shorten the interval if there is a significant decrease in visual acuity or if there are signs on the OCT of any intraretinal fluid or worsening subretinal or sub-RPE fluid or if there are signs of new hemorrhage on the dilated fundus examination. I will maintain the treatment interval if the visual acuity is relatively stable if there is no intraretinal fluid, but signs of minimal or stable subretinal fluid and sub-RPE fluid, and there are no signs of hemorrhage on dilated fundus examination. I'd like to summarize by saying that anti-VEGF therapy is highly effective and generally safe. And as we see new emerging agents, we want to be sure that they are safe and at least as effective as our current anti-VEGF agents. Finally, it is important to find the right treatment paradigm for patients, whether it is fixed interval dosing or treat and extend. We know the best results come from a personalized or individualized treatment approach. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.